this summer, about, uh, I guess we're about a month or so into it now, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, sort of a subset uh, within the Psalter of these pilgrimage songs, uh, these songs that were to be sung as God's people traveled up, literally up in elevation uh, to Jerusalem for the major feast holidays of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant church year. And the Psalms of Ascent are helpful for us as New Covenant believers because they give us a playlist. They give us songs for the road trip. They give us these songs that are prayers that shape us in how we lean into our experiences we have along the way as we travel towards a sacred destination. And so we're going to continue looking at these songs for the road trip today with Psalm 125. I'm going to read that for us now. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and now the preaching of your word, that you would speak to us because yours is the voice that we need to hear above all others, the voice of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Psalms of Ascent fit this greater pattern that we see in the Bible, that we see in God's story, that God has a habit, if you will, a tendency to call his people to leave places that are known, that are safe, that are secure, in order to follow him. You know, the challenge being that uh, we are to place, uh, that these people who the God calls, the challenge being to place their security in the Lord their God, no matter where they may go or what may happen along the way. And the people of God in the Old Testament, if you read through the history of God's people, they don't always do well with this. When their security is threatened, when they are feeling insecure about God's promises to them, they often are quick to look elsewhere for security. There's this one psalm in particular that speaks to this, Psalm 20, verse 7. I'll remind you of what it says. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this. You might have heard this before. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. Now, besides being the symbols of military might in the ancient Near East, think the tanks and Apache helicopters uh, of their day, there was also a very specific reference for the people of Israel when they heard that phrase, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. They would immediately think of Egypt. 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 Because Egypt dominated the political landscape 
of the ancient Near East for a long, long time. And during the reign of one of Israel's kings, King Hezekiah, during his reign, this really nasty dude named Sennacherib, snack on a rib is what it sounds like. It's like Sennacherib, uh, led the army of Assyria against Jerusalem. He led Assyria's army up to uh, the outskirts of Jerusalem, they came to sack that city. This city, Jerusalem, that is this fortified city that we've talked about, and as we looked at the Psalms of Ascent, that sat like a saucer in between all these hills. So it was naturally fortified. But yet, this is Assyria. They were the big dog at that time, and they have come to take Jerusalem. And it's not looking good for Israel. It's not looking good for the city of Jerusalem. So King Hezekiah's advisors urge him to make an alliance with Egypt. Hey, you know who does have the military might and power to take care of this Sennacherib dude in Assyria? Egypt. They have enough military might and power to drive the Assyrians out of the land and protect Jerusalem. Now, is Egypt just going to do that for free? Of course not. They're not going to do it out of the goodness of their own hearts. There will be a deal in this alliance. Yes, Egypt is willing to come and kick the Assyrians' rear ends and drive them out of Israel and out from away of Jerusalem, but it will come at the cost of Jerusalem, of this kingdom of Israel, basically becoming a vassal state of Egypt. That Israel, the nation, will come under the control of Egypt. Egypt right? King Hezekiah's decision is to basically put his country back under the subjugation of the very same nation that enslaved his people for 400 years. But Egypt's a wealthy nation. They got all those chariots. They got all those horses. They got the resources just like they did the same day that they chased God's people, when God led them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. So with Assyria banging on the door, Israel would rather go back to the security of having Egypt in charge over them than the insecurity of having to trust that the Lord can deal with the Assyrian threat to their nation's security. Which I guess in some ways is not too surprising. They've considered this option before. If you know the story, after God led them out of slavery, at the great exodus out of slavery in Egypt, but they had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, what was one of the major complaints that they had to Moses? This stinks. We're out here in a desert wilderness. We should just go back to Egypt where we had it better. We might have been treated inhumanely while we were slaves in Egypt, but it was better than this. Maybe we should just go back and put ourselves under their thumb. This was the challenge that Israel faced time and time again as their security was threatened. And if you think, well, okay, that's cool. That's Old Testament stuff. That's, that's those stories that are there, you know, to give us examples if you think that it just ends was by the time Jesus comes along, well, think again. I mean, Jesus does exactly this. What does he do? He goes around and invites these 12 guys, leave their jobs, leave their family, leave their friends, leave the things that they know and that they're secure and are routine and their day-to-day. Leave all that aside, leave it, and come follow me. 
Jesus is constantly walking into situations and subverting the conditions that promised familiarity, status quo, comfort, and security, and he asked them to leave it all behind. Why? Why is this God's pattern? Why is this God's pattern all the way through his relationship with the people of God in the Old Testament, and then again when he comes and reveals himself in Jesus Christ and what he does and the human and the man, the God-man Jesus, why does he do this? Well, one scholar, her name's Esther DeWall, she puts it this way, and I think this is good. God wants to pry us away from anything that might hold us too securely. Our careers, our family systems, our money-making. We must be ready to disconnect. There comes a time when the things that were undoubtedly good and right in the past must be left behind, for there is always the danger that they might hinder us from moving forward and connecting with the one necessary thing, Christ himself. God wants to pry us away from anything that might hold us too securely. Sometimes the problem with our need for security is that we too often place our security in something that begins to then hold us, as Esther DeWall says, too securely, i.e. enslaves us, starts to make us their slave. We would rather have the security of being enslaved to our habits, our patterns, our addictions, because they are known and comfortable to us, than to leave them behind and enter into freedom. Why not just go back to Egypt, right? That's the question. Now, safety and security, as Esther DeWall says, is a good and right thing. It is a basic human need and right. That is not to say that we do not grieve when our security is threatened by suffering or injustice as the church. We are to do all that we can when the basic human right of our neighbor's safety and security is being compromised. That is indeed all true. For example, you may have heard that in our neighborhood, just down Hall Street at the end, close to the uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard, the city plans to open the largest shelter, dormitory-style shelter, in the history of New York City. In the history of New York City. It's going to house 2,000 adults. There are 500 adult men already there right now. And the city plans to keep pulling these folks from all different parts of our city and funneling them to this high-rise down in the Brooklyn Navy Yard very soon. 500 all-migrant men right now are currently living there. And they are men who have left war-torn countries like in West Africa or the Ukraine. I'm sure there are plenty who have made their way to New York City looking for better opportunities. But regardless of their reasons for immigrating to America and finding themselves in New York City, and regardless of how you feel about them being here, they are here. And their basic human dignifying right to be safe and secure is not secure. It is compromised. 
Now, this is and has always been a major challenge for our city. I mean, this is why New York City exists in a lot of ways. How to provide secure shelter to a never-ending stream of immigrants. I do not envy our city government's predicament. That's why Anita prayed for them and why we regularly pray for our city's leaders here at this church because there are not easy answers or solutions. But not only is this a challenge for our city government to figure out how they can perhaps pro properly provide some semblance of security for these men and women, it's also a challenge for us as the church. How can we see the need of our neighbors and work to try to address those needs in some way? And more info is going to come out in the coming days. Uh, Laura Galt did some fact-finding missions uh, yesterday and went and met with some aid organizations that are already on the ground, already plugged in, helping the men at this shelter. And so we, too, are going to try to see if there's ways that we can partner with this aid organization and help to address those needs as well. And we will be sending that out in the days to come. But nevertheless, getting back to the point, safety, security, it's not a bad thing. Just like affection and esteem are not bad things. Just like power and control in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. But any good thing becomes a problem when our emotional programming for happiness starts to elevate them and make them into the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing that must be protected and guarded against at all costs. And we do not like vulnerability. We do not like feeling insecure. But it is very often God leading us into vulnerability. As we see in the scriptures and the stories that we know in our own life, it is often God leading us into insecurity to try to get us to stop scheming. To stop driving ourselves crazy. To try to control our need for security. To stop constantly trying to manipulate God into our preferred version of security. And to instead begin to trust that, as the psalmist say in 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. You see, if we can begin to loosen our ego's grip that we must have our safety and security in a certain way, in our way, then we can begin to allow what is and actually live in this present moment without constantly looking over our shoulders wondering what threat is coming to get us. Which is why that I think that practices like contemplation or centering prayer or Christian mindfulness are so important for us and why I think we need to try to work to recover these practices because when you, whenever you start your day asking the question, what do I have to do today? What must I do today in order to be secure? Then you are setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up to have your expectations frustrated. If that's the first question you ask when you get out of bed in the morning, get used to disappointment. 
But if instead you start your day slowing down, stopping before you get off and racing and running, not asking what do I have to do today, but who am I becoming today in this present moment, in silence, being quiet, then we stand a much better chance of opening ourselves up in that silent moment of contemplation to see and to realize that God is right here. He's right here. He's not out there somewhere. You don't have to drive yourself crazy going and try to find him. He's already here with you in this present moment. He's surrounding you, just like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And your day is going to be filled with both good and bad, joy and sorrow, successes and disappointment. There is always going to be both. But you can rest secure that God uses all of it. Nothing is wasted. Because you are surrounded by Him all of the time. You know, as I thought about this passage and thought about what it means to be secure and have security and not fret over our security, I thought to various times when I've been able to travel to different places in the world or even in our own country and ask the question, why do some people who have so little material possessions, they have way less stuff, way less money and wealth than I do, exhibit so much more contentment in their level of security. And as I thought about that, and even as you go and read a lot of times when people are asked, um, you know, in places in third world countries and places where they don't have a lot of material wealth and possessions, what do they think of Westerners? And a lot of times, you know what they answer? They seem very lonely. So when I thought about this in my experiences, why do people with so little material wealth exhibit way more trust and confidence in their security than even I do? It occurred to me is because they are surrounded. They're surrounded. They're surrounded by community all the time. It never enters into their way of thinking that they would be better off making their way all by themselves alone. So as I said earlier, I do believe that practices of contemplation help ground our security in the Lord, but we also need this practice too. Corporate gathered worship, coming together on downpour rainy Sundays for the same reason, because when we gather today for gather together for worship, and also when we gather in each other's homes for prayer and for fellowship, when we do these things, we surround each other to remind each other that we are safe, that we are secure. Because when you look around this room and you see and you hear the Imago Day, the image of God. And the faces of the men and women who surround you this day, then you are seeing and hearing the God of love who surrounds you every single day of your life. At this moment and every moment. That's why we need this practice. We need this weekly reminder that we are surrounded. 
We need to be able to come together and to sing to one another, just like these ancient Near Eastern pilgrims sang to each other. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Yes, those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away. But peace be, shalom be upon God's people forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.